Hello and welcome to The Bunker. I'm Andrew Harrison. Regular listeners will know that we like our American politics on the podcast, our additions on the presidential election, the fall of Trump and the insurrectionist riot in the Capitol on January the 6th were among the most listened to episodes of the past 12 months. As a certain ex-president knows, fear sells. But the notion that Trumpism would vanish without Trump has proved to be naive. Since losing the presidency, the Republican Party has doubled down on the big lie that Biden and Harris stole the election. Indeed, accepting that lie has come close to becoming an article of faith for Republicans. The party punished Liz Cheney for her refusal to comply with it and replace this former Republican royalty as House Number 3 with a Trump loyalist of limited experience. They've bent over backwards to downplay the seriousness of the Capitol riot. Republican Congressman Andrew Clyde described the mob invasion as a normal tourist visit, even though he himself was seen in pictures afterwards hiding and screaming in panic on the day. And Senate Republicans will almost certainly quash a 9-11-style inquiry into the attack. So where does this leave the party? And more importantly, where does it leave future presidential elections? If the Republican Party believes that all Democrat victories are by definition illegitimate, what happens if the Democrats win next time? Could Republican state legislatures simply refuse to send the electors that the voters chose to the Electoral College? Could they send their own? And what happens if the Republicans win, possibly with Trump or worse as a candidate? And Democrats are faced with confirming a president and the party which, once in power, would dismantle the machinery of American democracy. Now, these are frightening science fiction type scenarios. And to help me with them, I'm joined by Donald Moynihan, chair at the McCourt School of Public Policy at Georgetown University former visiting professor at the Blavatnik School of Government and Nuffield College, Oxford. And he did his BA at the University of Limerick, which is a bit closer to us. Hello, Donald. Thanks for joining us. And thanks for your patience in that long intro. Happy to be here. How are you and where are you and what's happening? I'm doing well. I'm, I'm just outside Washington, D.C. I'm enjoying a turn to finer weather and the actual opportunity to go outside nowadays, which is a nice change of pace. Yes, I don't think it's going to catch on. I think we'll just stay indoors for, for the duration. I, I want to ask him, you, you're, you're in Washington. Were, were you there on, on the Capitol Insurrection Day? Uh, I was I was not downtown, but uh, I'm in basically the suburbs of Washington. So I was in the vicinity. And certainly, I think if you were living here, people felt quite nervous about what was happening and whether it would spill over into the surrounding areas. So that, there was definitely a sense of nervousness and concern by, by residents. Yeah, I mean, obviously, we were all watching on television. I was watching it with my, my wife, who's an American and a patriot, and we just couldn't believe what we were seeing. She was, like, genuinely horrified and distraught about it. I want to ask you about those two scenarios I mentioned in a minute. But firstly, is that reading of the situation that I just gave you, is, is it catastrophist? Am I overdoing it there? So I, I think the, the hard thing about this is that we're in unknown territory, we can't really put a good estimate of the probability of any of these happening. And it's sort of like the capital insurrection. But we've gone from a situation where the probability of something like that happening went from zero and unthinkable to, oh, it actually happened. And you could easily have seen if, if the crowd had gone in another direction, many more people getting hurt. It's not unreasonable to be quite concerned that we're seeing a, a series of threats now to democracy in the United States that felt really unthinkable five years ago or 10 years ago. Then figuring out what's the probability of those threats actually turning into a reality, that, that's the harder thing. But, you know, if nothing else, we should be worried because the stakes really are catastrophic. It's something like the end of democracy as we know it in the United States. One of the numerous frightening things is that, you know, after the last presidential defeat, the Republicans went into full autopsy mode. They looked at what they'd done wrong. 
Trump tore that up when he became the nominee, but the reaction now seems to be total denial and this embrace of a fantasy analysis and that big lie that I mentioned that the election was stolen. How widely is that big lie believed outside of the Republican core of politicians and party members and, and the truly committed? Does it leach outwards into the wider Republican support? Yeah, so polls show that a majority of Republican voters believe the big lie. And it, the numbers vary depending on how you word the question but something like 55 to 70 percent of Republican voters believe that Trump uh, it was legitimate winner of the election and that the election was stolen from him. So it's not this marginal idea. And it's, it's really interesting. You go back and you talk about 2012 because the Republicans then did this really sensible autopsy where they said, we're not reaching out to younger voters. We're not reaching out to minority voters. How can we change that? And what happened was Trump happened. And so Trump took his set of arguments, which were, you know, anti-immigrant, very much appealed to the sort of conspiratorial aspect of the Republican Party. He really sort of made his name promoting the Bertrandism conspiracy theory. And he showed that that was the part of the party that was really responding to those sorts of messages. And that was really the majority of the party. So he went from nowhere to controlling the oldest American political party simply by playing on those sorts of uh, populist fears, which were really grounded in, in nothing but conspiracy. So it's not then a complete surprise that in 2020, the party doesn't really even bother with a sort of sensible autopsy. Now they, they just have committed to this big lie and you really risk being run out of the party if, if you don't commit to it. The choice this time, rather than self-reflection, has been to recommit to voter suppression and delegitimizing this election, which, of course, runs the risk of delegitimizing future elections. I mean, how would you characterize the, the, the interplay of the kind of hangover from Trumpism and the pandemic? Because they've almost become parceled together as, a, as an identity. You know, you, you believe that the election was a lie. You believe that COVID is a lie. You don't wear a mask. We've got QAnon oddball Marjorie Taylor Greene claiming that wearing a mask is equivalent to being a Holocaust victim. It's become a package, hasn't it? Yeah. And it's, it's what we've seen is this fringe thinking what in the 1960s was labeled as the conspiratorial style or paranoid style of thinking, which was really at the fringes of the Republican Party at that point, in places like the John Birch Society, and has moved into the mainstream of the party. And so things like basic public health measures, like wearing a mask, how, how did that ever become so politicized? Mm. But there was a willing audience for uh, conspiracy theories and people like Trump are, understand that audience quite well and they're willing to play on those concerns such that we now have a very large number of people who are doubtful about vaccines or even just something like wearing a face mask when you go into a store. They view that as this sort of extreme suppression of their liberty. I wanted to ask you, I was reading Paul Krugman in the New York Times this morning saying that the problem lies less with the crazies than with the careerists, not with the madness of Marjorie Taylor Greene, but with the spinelessness of Kevin McCarthy. And I wanted to ask you, is there anybody in the, we were just seeing the kind of the, the immolation of Liz Cheney. Is there anybody left pushing back against this kind of thinking in the Republicans? There's not many. There's a small number of people in the House, maybe a few more in the Senate, the thing that's hard to, to estimate is 
how many uh, of the Republicans who are sort of silent or going along with this are really believers versus they just don't want to be personally attacked. A few months ago, six months ago, you could see a member of Congress being incredibly concerned about Trump will attack me on Twitter. And to a great degree, that power has been diminished. Trump is no longer on Twitter. He no longer is president. He doesn't dominate the conversation the same way that he did. Nevertheless, you still see this hangover of fear of pushing against the the sort of conspiratorial style of thinking that Trump exemplified to the point that, you know, I, I don't know how many of these folks actually believe the stuff that they're selling. The obvious starting point is looking at some of the voter suppression bills that occurred in the aftermath of the election. So Trump tells the big lie and a lot of Republicans won't necessarily endorse that. At the same time, though, we've seen 361 bills in 47 states that have been proposed that would make it harder to vote that are very much premised on this idea that there was lots of fraud that took place and we need to fix that problem. Um, And so, you know, in really concrete policy ways, they're acting as if that that big lie was actually true. So can I put these two scenarios to you then? Firstly, you know, imagine a Democratic candidate, Kamala Harris, whomever, wins a majority of electoral votes in a presidential election, but in states where the big lie has been told repeatedly for four years, officials simply refuse to certify or they find irregularities. They decide not to send the electors who are chosen by the people to Washington. They decide to choose their own electors. Now, firstly, could that happen or am I away in the land of science fiction here? So again, it's, it's a plausible scenario. It is not science fiction. It is not beyond the realm of possibility. And, and we've gone from a situation where even professional political scientists, most of them would not have given much thought about the machinery of how this would occur to now paying quite a bit of attention to it because now it is actually plausible. And the reason we have to worry is that we saw what was an effect, an attempt to do this in, in a couple of states, right? You, you saw, but for a couple of Republican officials in places like Michigan and Georgia and Pennsylvania that were willing to refuse the president's entreaties to appoint alternative electors, things could have gone quite differently. In, in Wisconsin, where I lived for a long time, the Supreme Court majority uh, voted for three against uh, opening up the election outcome. So again, one vote might have changed things. It wasn't a slam dunk that the outcome was going to be uh, what it was. And what we've seen since then is efforts to make it more likely that that sort of anti-democratic outcome will emerge four years from now. So you see people being uh, who are perhaps pushing against the president's messaging, Secretary of State of Georgia, for example, losing many of their powers to certify elections. Uh, And you see real concern that, you know, in 2024, a majority of Republicans, if they hold the House and Senate, would decide there are are enough concerns here. uh, We're just going to vote with our guy, regardless of what the election outcomes tells us. 
Is there any redress or uh, you know any kind of check and balance at federal level for this? Is all certification of electors done at state level with individual state regulations? So states will uh, uh, select their electors who will present the electoral votes to Congress, and then Congress will vote to accept these. It's a sort of two-step process, should be incredibly routine. If at the state level, you can overturn the electoral outcome, and so let's say a state legislature says, we're not going to accept the electoral outcome, we're going to appoint a a number of electors who are going to vote the way uh, we believe they should vote. Um, So that's one mechanism by which you could change the outcome. And then they go to Congress and Congress decides to listen to these alternative electors or to simply follow their own beliefs about who should be elected. That's the second mechanism by which it could occur. At that point, obviously, the courts are involved extensively, but you're relying on a Supreme Court that is going to be a 6 tree conservative majority In general, the courts held pretty tough against fairly obvious false claims of fraud in the last election. The question is whether they would overturn something where the majority of the Republican Party has uh, decided they're going to simply ignore the election outcome. So that would be the Democrats' redress, effectively the Supreme Court and little else. And and we're really in (laughs) unknown territory here. You know, you have to go back to... Uh, 2000, where uh, the Supreme Court intervened to effectively stop counting in Florida. But beyond the Supreme Court, then you're thinking about, well, which side does the military align with? Like, then you're really in banana republic territory. This is where I find my guide to future politics comes more from Judge Dredd than it does from my politics course at university. That second scenario, that the Republicans win, maybe with Donald Trump or a Trump or another right winger like Pence or Josh Hawley. And the preceding rhetoric, the campaign is all, we're going to end the stealing of elections. We're going to end fixed democracy. We're going to redress 2020. We're going to put 2020 right. They could win. On the way, they're clear that they would in power act anti-democratically. The rhetoric from the presidential candidate is we will reshape democracy, more voter suppression, possibly in concert with red states. This would be what I think Marcia Gessen called on our podcast, the authoritarian attempt. Could the Democrats be faced with, you know, the kind of necessity of certifying someone who will go on to damage or cripple the machinery of democracy itself? It's certainly plausible. And I don't see anything in the behavior of the Democrats that would make me think they would object to doing so. I mean, I think there was maybe one Democratic elector in in Congress in 2016 who uh, objected to Trump being um, elected, despite, you know, those obviously clear concerns about Trump's authoritarian tendencies at the time. It's certainly plausible that you would see a federal bill that would make it harder to vote or would find other ways to constrain democratic impulses. Up to now, Republicans have been relying primarily on states where they control the legislatures to do this. What's happening in the meantime at the federal level is Democrats desperately need to pass something at the federal level to as a countermeasure for fairly obvious anti-democratic policies at the state level. But that would mean you'd you'd have to get centrist Democrats like Joe Manchin 
to decide to end the filibuster, and they've given no sign that they're willing to do so. And from this side of the Atlantic, just, I think a lot of us got a rapid education in the Electoral College in the last election. For a lot of us, we just think, how can this possibly make sense? You've, you've, you've got a very simple, straightforward popular vote. Surely the man or woman who, gets, who wins the popular vote should become the president. And yet the legitimacy or the use of the Electoral College isn't even really, doesn't seem to be anyway, at issue. Why is that? I think there are, there are certainly people who would love to see uh, the Electoral College overturned. And there has been an effort to try and create agreements across states where states would pass state laws that would commit them to following the winner of the national popular vote, regardless of the outcome of the vote in their particular state. But it's, it doesn't have quite enough support to move forward because at this point, it's quite clear that the Electoral College has a significant partisan tilt towards Republicans. And so Republicans are simply not going to participate in any enterprise that will make it less likely that their candidate will be elected. Um, so, I, you know, I think that that's makes it much more difficult to change the rules of the game with regards to the Electoral College. But but like you, I, I completely agree it would be a more simple system to have the winner of the popular vote. One of the problems with the Electoral College if you is, is that if you live in places like California or New York or Texas, presidents have little reason to pay a lot of attention to you because they already know the outcome of the election. They're only paying attention to maybe five to 10 swing states where their campaigning there might actually make a difference. Is it the fact that if you were to move over to a general popular vote system, American campaigning politics isn't built for that? You know, you, you can manage a campaign in swing states, but if the entire country is a swing country, it would require remaking campaigning. It would absolutely change the nature of how political campaigns are run. But look, I, you know, consult, political consultants will still make money. Ads will still be run. They'll still be get out the vote processes in all of these states. There, there is political machinery in some of these other states. So I'm not too worried that that is, is what's barring us. I think it's really at this point the partisan opposition by Republicans to moving towards what most people would agree is a simpler and fairer system. Just to wrap up, I mean, we've, we've set out a whole load of terrifying potential problems and awful futures here. Donald, have you got any reasons to be optimistic or hopeful about what's happening in American electoral politics at the moment? I mean, actual retail politics, actual policy promulgation and doing stuff is kind of relatively cheerful, isn't it? Biden's proving surprisingly popular and surprisingly radical. He's actually doing things and (laughs) uh, Biden is actually paying attention. I mean, people have to benchmark their expectations. The president is not king and uh, Biden has fairly slim majorities. But on that limited basis, he's actually trying to make policy and government work in a way that we saw much less of over the last four years. So I see some positive aspects to that. And also, it's it's just not quite as easy to demonize Biden as it was for Hillary Clinton or for Barack Obama. And you can draw your own conclusions yeah, as why to is why that, that is. Mm, I'm puzzled. Uh, <laughs> uh, you know, I think we, we had a black president in 2008, and it caused this historic response in 2010 that allowed Republicans to to capture many state legislatures, uh, recapture control of of Congress. 
and from there engage in pre-Trump some of those anti-democratic tendencies in terms of things like gerrymandering and making it harder to vote. I think race had a non-trivial part of that. I think with Clinton, it's maybe more complicated because she was she's been in American politics for so long and she had baggage. But I, I don't want to discount that gender didn't play a role there as well. On the other hand, you know, on the, on the more negative hand, I worry when I see polls where a majority of Republicans express and embrace the sort of anti-democratic sentiment, where they, they feel like the, the solution is not necessarily we need to change our policies or we need to have a bigger tent. It's more that we need to change the rules of the game to make sure we don't lose again. Donald Minahan, I've made you wander into uh, frightening futures with me. Uh, thanks for that. Thank you for accompanying me. I have to ask you, who do you think the next presidential campaign will be between? It doesn't necessarily need to be individual people. What kind of people? Or, or you can place a bet on someone if you like. You want to put your, put your $10 on somebody. Uh, yeah, I'm historically awful at making <laughs> these bets. But I would think right now Biden looks like the strongest candidate on the Democratic side, precisely because he is just less easy to demonize. Mm. Now, mind you, he will be quite old. On the Republican side, Trump is the person who, if he runs, is going to be incredibly hard to, to beat unless his legal troubles become so significant that he decides he cannot run. He, with any polls at this point, by far and away, the dominant actor and everyone else is you know, 20 or 30 points behind. So I think there, there, it will be a Trump or a Trump-like candidate in 2024. If Trump does not run, then it does become incredibly interesting because Trump does have this unique ability to tap into the populist element of the Republican Party that some of his aspirants, his, the, his sort of copycats within the Republican Party, just don't have that skill set. The sort of Josh Hawley's or Tom Cotton's are simply not as good at doing that as Trump is. And so then it, it's, a, it's much more of an open question if Trump does not get there, who does? Um, I don't think it'll be Liz Cheney. I don't yeah. think it'll be someone who has publicly opposed Trump but it might be someone who has managed to balance not quite publicly running against Trump, but doesn't embrace everything that he stands for. Well, tonight I will say a little prayer for the Attorney General <laughs> of New York State, and we'll see what happens. Donald Moynihan, thanks so much for joining us. It's been uh, fascinating and terrifying in equal measure. Thank you. Pleasure. We'd love to have you on again. Listeners, remember there will be new episodes of The Bunker every Monday to Thursday and on Saturday. Our companion podcast, Oh God, What Now?, is out on Friday mornings. If you want to support The Bunker in its valuable work of scaring you to death, you can sign up to support us on Patreon, where you will get all of the episodes a day early, without adverts, and also access to our delightful merchandise as well. Search Patreon Bunker Podcast to find out more. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Don't have nightmares. The Bunker Daily was produced and presented by Andrew Harrison. The assistant producers were Jacob Archbold and Yelena Sofronievich. The audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker Daily is a Podmasters production. <laughs>